Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the, the Unauthorized, Unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater with the normal bitcheries and qualms by watching the video recordings from of questionable origins of various productions. This week, we are talking about the Broadway production of Grey Gardens, specifically the performance from December 6th, 2006. This specific performance is a little harder to find on the internet, though you'll be able to find a few other recordings of this cast, some from off-Broadway, which you might want to beware of, as significant changes have been made. Uh, we mention this because while we review the show itself, we also share thoughts about the specific performance we've seen. I can't find the Wi-Fi. I think that the raccoon disconnected it. How it's, am I supposed to get the to internet the internet? Oh, I don't really have many friends. Jerry comes over, but he's not any kind of a friend to me, darling. So without further ado, the curtain is now rising. The curtain just fell off of the rings the other day. That just happens. Things fall off the walls, but... You know, the Board of Health has been... Please enjoy our discussion of the December 6, 2006 performance of Grey Gardens. We are strong, even if we are. I don't continue an impression for the entire episode. We need to make this clear. (laughs) Enjoy the episode, everybody. Oh, hi. Joshua wanted me to come out in a kimono, so we had quite a fight. Dan! Dan! We gotta record the episode! Dan! Coming. Co-host. Darling. Dan, do you want to talk about Great Gardens off-Broadway or on? Which one would you like? What is this? What is this voice you're doing? I don't think I've really landed an impression here for you. I appreciate the attempt, but it's not really on base. It's like left of what the base is. And I was just going with whatever felt correct. It's just an old New Yorker and you're not in the Hamptons. That's, I think, the issue. You're not in the Hamptons. What, me personally right now, you mean? You and the impression. Both. Not in the Hamptons. <laughs> Hi, kids. Oh, boy. We're back. Hello. Uh, what did we do this week? <laughs> what we did this week, we're following up with a much, much less severe, much more subdued... Um, what? quiet show something that really lets us decompress after nine uh great gardens <laughs> decompress great <laughs> gardens is you decompressing jesus <laughs> you know doesn't everyone just like to kick their feet up open a cold glass of chardonnay close their eyes and just experience the breakdown that is great gardens <laughs> 500 cats come swarm you <laughs> Well, well, 500, uh, let's say, like, 450 alive cats. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, the first question yeah. that we ask 
every episode, yes. except for a gypsy mania. Uh-huh. Uh, what did you know about Grey Gardens before watching this show? So, Grey Gardens, what I knew about Grey Gardens was its status as a documentary. I knew that it was a really, really prolific documentary. It was one of... I, I, I've been under the impression that it's just one of the most famous documentaries out there. Yes. You know, a big cult classic kind of thing. Um, and then I heard that there was a musical of it and that it had incredible diva performances. And I figured, okay, well, there's no chance I won't get around to seeing it eventually. And then I got around to seeing it eventually. Uh, what did you know about Grey Gardens? Huh. What did I know? Let me try and put my life in order. So I think the first time I experienced anything Grey Gardens... I was at the library, and the library used to have a decent cast album collection. And they got the off-Broadway Grey Gardens cast recording. And I checked it out. And I knew nothing about the show, but it was a new cast recording that they added to their collection. And I had been through basically the entire collection. So you get the new show. If a new show comes in, you check it out and listen. And I was just bowled over. And so then after that, I watched the documentary and years after the musical, there was the whole Jessica Lange, Drew Barrymore TV movie that I watched. I was going to ask you about that. It's terrific. It's terrific. It is? Okay, mm-hmm. good. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. I look at something like that and I'm like, oh, this has all the makings of something that people hate. It was Jessica Lange pre-American Horror Story. So no one uh-huh. knew really, or everyone knew she's a two-time Oscar winner, but the people had forgotten uh-huh. exactly how talented Jessica Lange was. And this was her in a major HBO TV movie, really reasserting that she is a great actress that can mm-hmm. play all kinds of parts. And from the clip I saw, Drew Barrymore doesn't look half bad either. Drew Barrymore is very good. I recommend it. You should watch it. Yeah. You should watch the documentary. I will. And finally, I had watched the bootleg of Grey Gardens, but I watched it off the off-Broadway bootleg. I hadn't seen the Broadway version of Grey Gardens until I watched this episode. I've heard it's like a, it's a very different show. Not very, very different, but like a lot has changed. Yes. Basically, they threw out the score of Act 1. The songs are all in the same place, Mm. but they came up with better songs that are more connected to the characters and move the plot along better. Nice. So, what did you think of this show, the musical, Grey Gardens? Golly. This is just a show that knocked me out. It's so incredibly rich and complex and haunting it's really really a a a challenging show and a studied show and one that feels so meticulously crafted what i i went into this show going literally after the first five ten minutes seeing this pristine 1940s backdrop looking at these characters my immediate first thought was okay for this show to be an absolute success to me, I really want to see this breakdown. And I really want to watch all of this crumble. And that is exactly what this show provided. Um, well, you knew nothing what to expect. I mean, did you... At all. Had you heard of the house? No, I, I, I didn't totally know. I knew that the documentary Grey Gardens was about 
two women who had lived together in a house for years and years and years and years and were sort of just like, you know, crabby and... But you thought it might have just been another house in the Hamptons? I didn't think Hamptons at all. I thought it was like probably some shitty house somewhere in nowhere America. But it's it gave you that self-destruction perfectly. It, it gave me exactly what I was looking for. And then the entirety of the second act being so decrepit and disheveled and broken and shuttered and gloomy. This really just gave me every single thing that I could have hoped for with this show. You know, you, you, you like seeing pristine things destroyed sometimes. You like seeing things like that, you know, crumble, and you like seeing where they are afterward. It's interesting to watch. It's it's engaging, and it's gripping, and it, it gives you this really excellent, unsettling feeling. And this show was just absolutely marvelous at that, while still conveying not only a beautiful score and really, really just whammo dialogue. <laughs> That's the only word I can think to put it But deeply interesting fascinating characterization and just incredibly labored um dynamics that were just that just made it so interesting to watch so gripping just such a such an overwhelming night at the theater i think that's the the way i can think to put it and overwhelming in a really satisfying way that's that's my piece mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what were your thoughts watching this for the first time so I have to say, from the second I listened to that cast recording, it's become fastly one of my favorite scores. Mm-hmm. Definitely of the last, what, 21 years? And I don't know all time. It would probably land in the top 50, personally. Just such sense of melody. We'll go into the score in a little bit. It's a show that moves me. Moves me deeply. And it's a show I can relate to in an odd way. I, the grade of execution here is so incredibly high. And it's what I like to see when I go to the theater. We have tended to go with a lot of failed mother-daughter relationships. <laughs> Fun home that wasn't exactly... the most positive relationship the rink that was not a good mother-daughter relationship into the woods the witch and rapunzel not the most positive Uh, we spent an entire week on gypsy and coming up we're doing marnie that's one fuck of mother-daughter relationship oh boy this is a theme that we are revisiting 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 and it's not like uh, Guido Contini had the best relationship with his mom either. Well, no, and it's not like Gordon had the best relationship with his mother in a new brain. Uh-huh. And it's also... Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if this is a Freudian <laughs> what slip. What is it with us? I don't know if this is a Freudian slip at this point. I don't know if one of us is telling on themselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Uh, it's funny because it's true. I mean, you know, you're you the the bulk of those that you mentioned, your picks. So <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I just don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, let's do an eight episode series on Gypsy. No big deal. <laughs> uh, it's 
It's what I like to see. It's a great score. It's a great book. It's a great vehicle for actors. And it's psychologically complex, which I think is where I'm happiest. Give me something to really think over. Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely. It's so rich. Like, I used that word before, but that's the word I think that best puts how I felt about the show. Okay. Aren't they a a pair? Oh, well, that's for sure what they are. <laughs> Edie at last on the ground. Cats And you're going to pick fucking air. Little Night Music. Oh, my God. How's that mother-daughter relationship? Not good. <laughs> of course not. It's Sondheim. <laughs> no, we did Anyone Could Whistle, but there are no parents in that one. Well, there's, I guess there's Baby Joan. Baby Joan. I guess that mother exploits that child. Oh, yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you take away at the end of the night? What do you take away? Uh, um, Depression. <laughs> I think... <laughs> yeah, you walk out of this... <laughs> what do you take away? You walk out of this show needing a prescription and a therapist. Uh, it, it's one of those... <laughs> I, I saw Lady Bird, which is a movie about a mother and daughter that have a terrible relationship. My God, Dan, stop outing yourself. <laughs> and I was with the friend, and we both walked out of Ladybird, and neither of us had smoked in years and years and years, but we walked out of Ladybird, and we looked at each other, and we said, we need a fucking cigarette to deal with that movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is another one. You walk out of the theater, and you just want a ciggy to calm down for a second. You want a ciggy and a martini if I was still drinking. There'd be a cigarette in one hand, a martini in the other. You know, this is another one that really just felt like the heart of it was in the relationship between the mother and the daughter. Well, that's the entire show. And, yeah. Whereas, you know, it's another kind of... Of course it's based on this pre-existing material and you're retelling this real-life story, but... It does just feel a lot more like a concept musical, especially in the second act. I would say the first act is pretty plot driven and it's, you know, it it gives that impression of like telling you a story and then the second act happens and the story just halts and it's just about how these two people live together, which is an interesting clash of forms outright. And I think also that's interesting. We'll get to it when we talk about the material, but... You know, the first act feels like a 1940s musical, and the second act feels like a 1970s musical. That was going and to be to, one of my big points. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. It, it it's so brilliantly accommodates to the time periods of the stories it's trying to represent by putting it through those eyes and, you know, really tailoring it to the period, making it feel, I guess, authentic to that time of expression and so in that sense you sort of those kind of clashing themes make that message for me i guess a little bit more muddled where it's like you don't have an entire concept musical and you don't have an entire plot-based musical but i guess the ending of the show what it comes down to is the fact that i don't know this character she'll She'll make like she's leaving all she wants, but she'll always be back there. She'll always be trapped within that house, Grey Gardens, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, the first act ends 
with the walls closing in and Edith trapped inside the house, played by Christian Ebersole. And then at the end of the second act, the walls close in and Edie is trapped in the house, now played by Christine Ebersole. And so maybe it's just trying to demonstrate how the daughter becomes the mother here. I have very loose uh, things it's here. about the connection. I, I don't necessarily think about it, that it's the daughter becoming the mother, just that they are very codependent and they are very connected. Mm. Uh, this is going into the score, but the whole daddy's girl, daddy's girl, go oh pot, uh, take off that makeup, something about your lipstick, da 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 you go over to Jerry Likes My Corn. So that's Little Edie. Yeah. And Big Edie sings Jerry Likes My Corn, and I have the score up. We keep having um, this figure, you know, the regular melody, you know. Jerry likes the way I do my corn, yada da 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 dum um, Then you get to this whole, no picnic rowing, older, abandoned, and forlorn. It's almost an exact quote from Daddy's Girl. Yeah. The two songs are incredibly connected melodically in several different points. That's the first thing that comes to mind. But watching this last night, I'm going to be honest, it was very high. But it was the first time I recognized, <laughs> oh, wait a minute, these two songs are the same. I didn't notice that these two songs were the same. Not exactly the same, but they mirror each other. And I think a lot of the show is about these two women mirroring each other. A lot of it's these two women being codependent. And you get a lot of those connections throughout. Yeah. Okay, so do you want to kick it off jumping into the material? Yeah. Why don't we really talk about just overall? That first act really does feel like a 1930s, 1940s musical where you have songs yeah. that aren't necessarily the most connected to the plot. You have a couple of racist numbers in there. Yeah, at <laughs> least is... in this show there, through the lens of this is a racist song being done racistly, which maybe that makes up. And even the whole, I think they're trying to say you're not supposed to love this character. Because you walk into mm -hmm. Grey Gardens and you think of these two dotty women and you can kind of fall in love with them. And because you fall in love with them, you're not really analyzing the material in real time. You know? Yeah. You're just waiting around for the quotes from the documentary. And that's all in Act 2. Right. So we're going to see by the end of Act 1, Big Edie has basically ruined little Edie's life intentionally and for you to accept that fact you kind of have to be a little disgusted with her before that mm -hmm. and you have something like hominy grits yep. the entire point of that song to me was the butler reacting it seemed like that was where the focus was the show knew the song was racist and that goes without saying yeah. yeah like the entire like you i i was reading the libretto alongside it uh, and and the libretto outright makes a point of insisting how ill-suited she is um to this thing the actual libretto says the words are immune to its inappropriateness um mm -hmm. so it's it, it's definitely 
for the sake of just showing how insanely misguided she is with this. And of course, with, you know, this entire catalog of songs she's chosen, how many of them are, you know, quote unquote, exotic numbers at the time. Right. Just outright. Which is typical of... Aren't, she shouldn't be singing. Yeah. If you're doing a song recital in the 40s, you want to show range, so you're going to pick something exotic. And it was racist at the time. It still is even more inherently racist now. But this is what people did. And... Um, yeah. Especially with Hominy Grits, that leads right into a big confrontation between Big Edie and her father. And her father saying, you're embarrassing the family. What about the family name? That whole discussion. So it makes sense that something like that would enrage the father. And it makes sense that something like that would also make her not likable to the audience. Yeah, it didn't It didn't uh, benefit because of, you know, it, it didn't benefit from portraying a racist stereotype, if anything... It was shining an ill light on another character rather than having them benefit mm -hmm. from it. So the first act does feel like a 1930s or 40s musical. Even absolutely, I don't know if you were getting this too, but the Big Edie father confrontation scenes more than a 1940s musical. I was getting Tennessee Williams from those. Yep. The whole question about the estate Absolutely. and am I going to disinherit you and your pridefulness, that felt inherently Tennessee Williams. And that is also period appropriate for the 1940s. That's yeah. when Tennessee Williams hit it big. So I do think, and then we go to act two, 1970s, and we're in a Sondheim psychodrama. Sondheim-esque yes. psychodrama. Uh-huh. It's really... I don't think all people got that. You heard a lot of people say that Act 1 was boring. Really? Uh-huh. Which, I could not have been more engrossed during Act 1. I, re I really, really enjoyed every aspect of the show's construction. I thought it was just, like, it was masterfully constructed. Mm-hmm. It's a big swing. Going for... Yeah. We're going to specifically be dated. Yeah. So do you want to get right to talking about the material itself then? Yeah. Why don't we? Where do you want to start with the material? You know, it's curious. I wonder, would you like to talk about the the music and the book in Act 1 and then Act 2? I feel like that's a good way of Sure. Actually, for this episode, that is probably the best way to structure. Yeah, because, it, because again, there's such a disparity there. Such there's, a change, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like you can't... It, it would and be very also, difficult to talk about it as one cohesive unit. Also, Act 2 is from the documentary. So they're bringing yes. up specific lines and specific moments from the documentary. Act 1 is completely made up. So so I guess then let's do it all together, I think. What do you think? I Let's, let's maybe also talk about the production elements uh, in that. And we'll just talk about Act 1 as a whole and then Act 2 as a whole. Okay. Sounds good. Spectacular. Sounds good. So we're starting in 1941 in the well, House of Grey Gardens. We have a prologue first. Yeah, but that's yeah, but that's a couple minutes. But it lets you know this is where we're headed to. Okay, sure. Um, you know, yeah, I was I was really um, plussed with 
the use of projections here. I really thought it was to great effect. You know, lighting up this history, sort of taking you into this documentary-esque universe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So then we start, we have, she is the girl who has everything. She has the moon on a string. Now, this song keeps coming back several times throughout. And when you hear it the first time, it seems like just a lovely song. That comes in, and that's the final thing you hear. Yeah, and boy. that's one of the big changes. That is one of the big changes from Off Broadway because Off Broadway that ended with a reprise of Two Peas in a Pod, and I did not like how the Broadway version ended with "Girl Who Has Everything." Just listening to the cast album, sitting down and watching the Broadway production. It completely makes sense because she is the girl who has everything. It comes in again and you realize she was the girl who had everything and she is now the girl who has nothing. Mm -hmm. And the entire show has been about that loss. Yeah. Fantastically said. So even, you know, it's just a pastiche song that doesn't seem to mean anything and God, it ends up meaning something. It ends up meaning a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. So why don't we start talking about the score for Act 1? Sure. You told me, first of all, I guess this is more on orchestrations, but I want to get this out. You mentioned that this is a nine-person pit. Yes, because it was off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons. There's not a lot of room for a pit there. And then they moved to the Walter Kerr, which was a playhouse. I think they followed Doubt. And of course now oh, right. the Walter yeah, Kerr, mm-hmm. the Walter Kerr, is now where Hades Town plays. Yeah, but that entire band is on the stage. Yes, traditionally it was never a musical house, so there's not a big pit. They go with nine, and God, you don't notice. It 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 blew my mind that such a full sounding piece of music was produced by such a you know comparatively small number of musicians it's so lush and it's so fun you start off in such a really fun place you know when you have numbers like uh going places and the 515 and mother darling and they're these really you know these classic it's like it feels very much like those early plot driven songs that, you know, were just coming to life in the 1940s. Where they were very sweet, and they kind of had, like, a Noel Coward-esque feeling to them. And it keeps like that for a really long time. Till you get to Daddy's Girl. And that number There's... literally disintegrates in real time. There are hints of what's coming with Mother Darling. And you can tell that something is slightly askew, but the song ends happily. And uh-huh. then we get hints in the book scenes that things are going askew. You have Drift Away, which I have to say, God, what a gorgeous melody in that song. Uh-huh. It's a very nice song. And it's... A sad song, and then that leads into the 515 reprise, which feels a little more modern 
in that we're taking something that was such a positive, we're reprising it, and the meaning has slightly turned on its head. Which, typical for the 1940s, but a little bit, you see the direction the musical was going to go in when they started doing that. And then by mm-hmm. Daddy's Girl, Wall's been dropped. The, the, the way the music just turns on you by the end of the song it's so unsettling and so so brilliant at doing that it's like you know that that was the moment for me where i started saying oh yeah this thing is about to completely shatter in front of me and it just becomes like it starts to take like a psychological horror turn in the middle of this song that starts off so much like the other songs with this mm. kind of like, you know, more whimsical tone, even though it's dealing with this. With a... and, and of course, this is coming in a really, really, really intense, really despicable part of the plot. Reminds me of the it's familiar of that convention where, you know, even if you have a really serious moment, you have sort of like a jaunty tune going in there because, you know, they either had like ballads or jaunty tunes and musicals at that time. <laughs> um and then it just starts getting darker and more and more twisted. And you just sat there at the end going, Jesus Christ, where are we now? What I found interesting about Daddy's Girl, what happens is Big Edie has basically called her daughter a slut to Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, knowing that he would not want to hear that and probably wouldn't marry her. Which is a shocking turn, plot-wise. <laughs> it's a really <laughs> shocking turn. And then this song serves as a point of Little Edie trying to win Joe Kennedy back. But uh-huh. she's so psychologically frayed that she's not successful at it. She can almost pull it off, but at the end of the day, the hurt is so deep that she can't keep that bottled. She can't keep that undercover. She can't keep that under wraps. Yeah. So as each chorus happens, it becomes more and more apparent. And it's very sly. It's very slight. But God, does it become apparent. Absolutely. It. I, I, I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. What were, what were some musical highlights for you? I just want to say how great this set of lyrics is. Um, yeah. Something like, with Moonlight on the Waves... Delphidiums in flower save Puccini for the shower. That's a rhyme. That is um, that pleasure center in my brain lighting up with happiness. Or there's another <laughs> they rhyme eunuch and punic wars. This is an intelligent lyricist. This is a lyricist that expects the audience that is watching the show to be intelligent. He's not going to talk down to you. Uh, Perfect rhymes. A literate set of lyrics. Nothing banal. Nothing purple prose. Just absolute professionalism. You know, I mentioned, I guess, this kind of Noah Coward-esque kind of music. And I think this was really represented in something like the 515 and Mother Darling, where the lyrics just seem to be having so much fun, you know, mm-hmm. where they're, they're like taking these jabs and they're so 
they're so like delightfully witty. It's like you know, it's like it's like popping a little candy in your mouth every time you get one of those lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, knowing that it's gonna end up taking this course where it's just driving off the cliff, you 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 start seeing these kinds of lines performed with like an inc- an intense sincerity and like a really 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 anguished demeanor which i think does a great job at juxtaposing you know the sort of imposed frivolity of all the lyrics mm-hmm. um it's like they're all they're all just so you know wonderful in their own right and sort of harken back to those older days of musical theater while still giving you something that really packs a wallop really punches you in the gut mm-hmm. and then musically i just want to comment what a great master of melody this composer yeah. is. Something like Will You. Uh-huh. It sounds like a comfortable melody, but there's enough surprises in there that you're constantly interested. It's on the verge of becoming something else. Drift Away is another melody that just adds a melody. It's hard to really put words to it, but when you hear about the hummable show tune in the theater, this is psychologically complex, but also there's hummable melodies. That's exactly what I was going to say. These songs are actually pretty damn catchy, you know, for a show of the intensity of Grey Gardens and and the complexity of it. Interesting how many songs here are just outright damn catchy. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and something like 515 is so fun and so period yeah. and really would fit in with the rest of the songs from that period. It's one thing to do pastiche, but to do pastiche well is to fit in with the rest of the songs from that time period and still stand out. Absolutely the case with 515. You're going to know exactly where I'm going when I say this, but... As we both know, we've talked about the Old Man Wisdom song quite a few times in the, on this podcast. Mary Well is one of those, and it might actually be my favorite ever. Really? Yeah. That... I think this is one of the most effective. This is one of the most times I've ever actually really had fun and enjoyed during a number like that. That does surprise me. I I yeah. know it's an old man wisdom song. I didn't know if you were going to like it. I liked it a lot. I thought it was really fun. It was really bouncy. It didn't uh, it didn't ruminate on itself or take itself way too seriously. And it didn't give the actor you know just a tune for them to crank out. It was actually you know it was an interesting song. No, it is an interesting song. It's also a rare up tempo old man wisdom song. Exactly. Exactly. So, the last piece of the score I want to touch on before we move on is the Act 1 closer. Will you? What did you think of this number? When you have something you're trying to come to terms with, like, you know, the series of events that are as volatile as they are here, to be really just, like, stuck in this one place with this one song for this period of time, really, it it gives you the opportunity to really look at this character and really just go, like, God, what goes through her head? What, how does she do this so casually? What, how can someone so easily be such a monster and just 
carry on without ever noticing a thing is going on. It feels it 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 feels reminiscent to like the kind of narrative device that Cabaret the song plays, you know? Mm-hmm. Where it's like you just are forced to kind of sit there and look at this character immediately coming through such a drastic story beat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and it was just such a despaired moment to end your act on. Despair, yeah, absolutely. What a gorgeous song. This is really the first clear, unbridled, no gimmicks vocal showcase we have for Christine Ebersole. So you really get to sit there with the beauty of the voice. And my God, is it a beautiful voice. Just gorgeous tone. It's so gorgeous to listen to. And the fact that it's so gorgeous only makes the pain more real, more cutting. Absolutely. So then, why don't we go on for the book for Act 1? Yeah, please. You mentioned, you know, something about the fact that there were parts of this that were written like Tennessee Williams. And I'll concur and say that a lot of this book sets up this happy, pristine, low-stakes kind of 1940s environment. And then hits you with a bunch of really brutal slap into reality kind of moments, you know, where you're led to question everything that you think you know about these characters and everything you think you know about these characters' dynamics, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, you have Joe learning about Edie's past, I suppose. You figure out that uh, Gould isn't... Uh, what you thought his relationship to Edith would have been in the first place, you realize that there's like an entire what did you think weird that, in history. What did you think that relationship was going to be in the first place? At first I figured, oh, 1940s thing, oh, it's probably like a chum of theirs who sort of comes by and is like maybe, oh, maybe that's the role he plays. He's just like the accompanist to the house and they have him like on hand or something. They live in the Hamptons. They could probably afford it. And then, uh, And then that evolved into... Oh, okay, so I guess this guy's taking on, like, something like a stepdad role, it seems, but also not, like, really. And then by the end of it, you're like, oh. Oh, so he's... And she's... He's a gay, devoted accompanist. Yeah. This is Um, is what gay men were in the 40s. If you were lucky. And Edith is uh, trying to push that relationship into something that just isn't possible no i don't think that she's trying to get romantically involved with him at all she just doesn't want him to leave her well then what's the entire that the the reason they like sort of split apart right is because he the reason they split apart is saying because he doesn't he feels like he's mooching off of them and he wants to create a life of his own and he is feeling trapped in the way that little Edie is then going to be trapped by big Edie. okay yeah yeah I, i'll i'll was that, that not the I, reading, I, reading you took from it no not really like i took um i'm trying to find the line see i i see exactly what you mean i think the first time i got around to the lines where he was talking about i'm afraid i'm not really living up to my half of the bargain am i I, I took that from a more relationship context where, like, you know, I, I, I took that to assume that Edith was projecting things onto Gould that 
school wasn't like fulfilling as as he didn't think he would have had to based on the nature of the relationship. But now that you mentioned that, that also makes See, a lot of sense. I took that as in I'm not here all the time. You're expecting someone to be at your beck and call, and there are times when I'm off trying to pick up men. Maybe, yeah. And I'm never going to be as devoted as you want me to be. Well, that would make a lot of sense, especially when you then consider the role of Jerry in the second act. Yes, Jerry is very much nouveau gould. Yeah. It makes a lot more sense when you bring it up in that fashion. I I overall am in love with this book. It's Yeah. Again, intelligent, it's literate, there's some great laugh lines, um, and then there's just some great dialogue. You know, they say drama is conflicting motivations, and uh-huh. there are such conflicting motivations with these characters. But then you'll also just get a line that tells you exactly who these characters are. And Father Bouvier has his Mary Wall song, and they say, well, Father Bouvier, you have to come into Grey Gardens. And he says, Grey Gardens, that haven for communist misfits and unpublished poets. <laughs> Which is a great laugh line, but tells you exactly how yeah. he sees the world. Yeah. So great for establishing character. And this book is full of lines like that. And then also, the book sets up the songs well. Absolutely. A mixture of fantastic development incredible lines and a beautiful beautiful unfurling of this world Mm -hmm. uh, in front of the audience's eyes the big aha moment i got last night by the end of act one the men in these two women's lives have all abandoned them and they are living in a society where women are expected to depend on men and they just can't deal with that. And so that is how you end up at Act 2. Huh. Did you get that? Well, you fleshing it out made it, it really put it on blast. Thank you for phrasing it like that. I, 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 I didn't get that initially, but you're absolutely right. The husband has left. Gould is going. The father has threatened to disinherit Big Edie. The sons yeah. are never pictured, ever. We never see the two sons. They're mentioned in right. Act 2. That is it. Every man in these women's lives have abandoned them or disappointed them. Totally. So why don't we talk about the production for Act 1? Absolutely. God, does it look fantastic. Yeah. It's really just beautiful and lush and you know, really detailed. We have this one major set, and sometimes the drop comes down and we're outside the house. But the majority of it is this one house set. And, God, it, it it's just the one place, but it feels so different from the first time we see it to the last. Mm-hmm. It, it's benefited a lot from lighting, I think. I think the lighting serves to really paint this house in so many different ways and to make this exact <laughs> same location look like... You know, it's been aged to death. So you know what I'm about to say? I don't know. End of 515 reprise. 
Big Edie goes back to the staircase and starts walking up the staircase. And there is this beautiful, glowing, orange light coming down from the top of the staircase. All I could think of is, that's it. That's how you'd like it. That is how you light a diva. I would bathe in that light. Mm. I would actually take pictures in that light. I would <laughs> never leave that light. If you put that light on stage and I was an actor, you know what? I don't give a fuck about your direction. I will stand here the entire time and this is how the audience will view me. Everybody come to me. I'm not moving. This is my good light. <laughs> Oh my god. Did you notice? It's <laughs> Yes, I did. It's like it was the gorgeous. most immaculate lighting an actor has ever gotten on the history of Broadway. Oh. <laughs> just it's something that really makes you go and clutch your pearls. And I am angry I did not win the auction. They auctioned off Christine Ebersall's pearls from Grey Gardens. I did not win that auction. Whoever has them choke on a dick <laughs> how much did they go for i think they went for like 600 bucks or something or 900 i think oh, they boy. went for 900 oh yeah okay that that does make sense mm -hmm. and you know the acting across the board is at such a high mm -hmm. level and when the really acting across the board is at that high a level that's the work of a director that's the work yeah, of a great absolutely. director. And who's the director here? Funnily enough, wouldn't have thought this name would pop up. Mm -hmm. Michael Greif. Michael Greif, who directed Rent. Uh, Michael Greif, who directed uh, Dear Evan Hansen. Michael Greif, who directed recently. War Paint most recently. Right. I totally forgot that he did that. <gasps> How could you forget the only musical of 2017? <laughs> I remembered the musical, not that he was on it. How could you not forget the entire history of the musical of 2017? There was only okay. one musical that okay. year. How could you forget? Let's take How could you forget back. the credits? Uh, and of course, I hope also you know. I hope you know we're getting Grey Gardens out of the way this early because I'm itching to get to War Paint. <laughs> we're gonna be covering War Paint soon. Oh my God! You needed a you needed a foundational knowledge of Christine Ebersole so that we could later on get to. Uh, more also, to know this writing team before we could then assess same writing team. else that they did. It's the exact same writing oh, team. Oh, great. Thinking back on it now, a few things make sense. Um, Michael Greif is someone who works with, you know, rather minimal sets. And not that this was a minimal set, but this was, you know, um, the entirety of Act 1 was dependent on a set. The entirety of Act 2 was dependent on a set. You know, he's someone who knows really well how to take a single space and squeeze every single thing out of it to really get the absolute most from this one sort of central set piece. And so that does make a lot of sense in the sense of like in the when thinking about how this was staged, you know, mm -hmm. like you think about this, and you think about Hanson, you think about uh, Next to Normal and you think about, you know, these kinds of shows where it's like you have this central set piece and it, it, it never, you never feel tired of it. Mm -hmm. um, and th the set does make gray gardens come to life. You can uh -huh. see why it was. And it honestly was one of the most famous houses in the country in the 1940s. It's a classy visual design and his directing. There's such clear blocking. 
I mean, yeah. we don't talk about blocking much, but just how he positions everyone on that stage and the power dynamics at play and how they are positioned communicating those power dynamics. Yeah. Really excellent work. Michael Greif knows how to work actors. Absolutely knows. That's just something he has in his blood. When you think about how brilliantly blocked something like Rent is, you know, and how brilliantly those actors are used to fill the space. And again, not to keep bringing it up because I don't, I don't have any interest in keeping bringing it up on his, on this podcast. But it's the work of his that I know the best in Dear Evan Hansen, where you have maybe just one of the most minimal sets you can get without going absolute full black box. A lot of that's really dependent on using your actors to, you know, sort of build the environment, and that they do, and that's something that he's really, really fluent at, and something that really, really shined here. You know something that he would also have to see happen? That he hmm. would have to make judgment calls about? Uh. Little Edie in Act 1 is played by Aaron Davey. And Big Edie is played by Christine Ebersole. Yep. In Act 2, Big Edie is played by Mary Louise Wilson. And Little Edie is played by Christine Ebersole. What he has to oversee is that Aaron Davey is then matching Christine Ebersole, and Christine mm -hmm. Ebersole is then matching Mary Louise Wilson. So there's a connection, and you never get confused about who's playing what character. And I have to say, we're going to get into performances. I think it's ridiculous to review performances of Act 1 after Act 2, but Aaron Davey does such a fantastic job of anticipating Christine Ebersole's Little Edie. For sure. You can see exactly where all the ticks are going to come out, what's going to grow, exactly what mania looks like for Little Edie. There's such a clear, unified idea. And that isn't something that an actor can completely see for themselves. That's something that the director has to get and has to help shape. Yeah. it it, it It's really, really fluent overall construction of mm -hmm. you know of of navigating this handoff from one performer to another in, in both senses you know in both cases you're working with a performer to then tailor or adapt to Christy Nebersole's performance you know like mm -hmm. you need to turn Big Edie into Big Edie you need to turn Little Edie into Little Edie you need to keep this transition fluent, and you're working on so many different levels of that, that creating one big consistent thing is an extremely daunting task that is carried through with little to no difficulty. At least makes it seem as such. It doesn't look like it's difficult. At all. And that's, you know, making things look easy is the hardest thing. Yep. We say that continually in every episode. But honestly, giving a sense of ease is the hardest thing to do in theater. Uh-huh. So, we're on Aaron Davey. Why don't we talk about Aaron Davey's performance? Yes, please. She's so brilliantly charming. She really does seem like, you know, like a living princess. Like, she's so brilliant and gorgeous. So effortlessly carries off this, you know beautiful air of class 
She's someone you look at and you go, this is the cream of society, which makes that breakdown that she undergoes so much more delicious, especially um, given the fact that she does it so majestically. She both plays this high society character and then drags her to the absolute bottom of the ocean, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, such a such a complex and varied performance. And of course, works so well um, in juxtaposition to Christine Eversole's uh, Big Edie. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of her? I thought it was just a lovely performance. She certainly sings well. The acting never seems forced. And this is something that is also consistent throughout the production. None of the acting here seems forced. And when you are doing impressions, and impressions especially as big as the impressions that happen in Act 2, it is so easy to force them. So you have to have such an innate knowledge of who the character is, what the impression is. It has to really be second nature. And you get the feeling, this absolutely is second nature for Aaron Davey. You were mentioning just how beautiful her singing is. And she's not given a walk in the park in this show. She has to sing some very, very difficult material. And, you know, the fact that she has to belt the end of Daddy's Girl is one thing. But then when you come around to... When you get around to something like The House We Live In, she's singing the very top harmony. She's hitting high Mm -hmm. Cs. And she's... (laughs) To, to to have a performer who's so capable of doing both is an incredible boon. And she holds herself so well on stage. You can yeah. tell this is someone who was a Deb, which is a world that we are kind of disconnected from at this point <laughs> in history, but she carries it off. We have Matt Cavanaugh as Joseph Patrick Kennedy Jr., What'd you think of him? What an accent. If, if the entire audience, the first line he says, everybody yeah. laughs because the accent is Spot probably the up. best Kennedy accent I've heard <laughs> someone do. To be completely honest. If this was the worst acting performance of all time and this accent were still there, I'm not 100% sure I would have been able to tell. <laughs> And we want to be clear, this is a good acting performance. Yes, yes, yes. It didn't even, it didn't need to be as good as it was because of the strength of this accent. But luckily we get an acting performance that's incredibly solid and incredibly thorough. And someone who's so deeply charming because, becomes someone who's so, both levels despicable and troubled, you know? It's like you sort of empathize for him, but at the same time, he walks out that door and you're just thinking, you go to hell. <laughs> or, or or I guess you go to the devil. One of those two. We really just are a gypsy podcast. We're, it, we're, we're, we're brainwashed at this point. There's no going yeah. back. Uh, he was, he was great. God, was he attractive? Uh, uh-huh. Great accent. Great voice. He was Could playing an Kennedy. asshole. So he seemed like an asshole. <laughs> So, 
next up, I think this is a very momentous moment in this podcast's history. We have John McMartin as J.V. Major Bouvier. Uh-huh. And I believe this is, and audience, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first time we are watching a performance from someone who was in the original cast of Follies. Oh. Oh, uh-huh. wow. He was the first ever Ben Stone. And when you oh. asked Stephen Sondheim what was the best male musical theater performance you saw, he will answer John McMartin in Follies. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. He was someone of immense capability here. The voice is still in decent shape for his age. I mean, he's not being asked to sing a lot, but the vocalism is very accurate. Yep. And then the acting prowess is just the gravitas he brings to the role. The understanding of dialogue, the understanding of voice just voice and how the voice moves in the theater and that you have to project totally great performance. He, he, he was, he was so adept with the comedy and the, the, it's never a sternness, but like, you know, that, that seriousness that he needs to portray. Um, mm-hmm. and again, sitting with that, you know, wisdomful old man stereotype. A lot of times it's not just that, the song isn't very interesting it's also fundamentally usually that the character isn't very interesting either because they don't put a great deal of effort in trying to have this character be someone that you want to hear a song from you know think of guys and dolls he has a couple lines in the missionary and all that time you're thinking okay now get out so we can have sarah brown (laughs) yeah so get out of the way so that we can have sarah brown talking to sky you know uh, you think of Waitress and you have the old man character there and he just sort of is wheeled on every now and then, says a couple cute things and then he gets a song, whatever. Here, this is a performance that's actually dynamic, that's actually interesting and you're sort of there going, oh wow, I'm intrigued in this character, I'm intrigued in this air he carries, how he feels about, you know, the dignity that this family deserves. It's an interesting performance. He's a perfect foil. Yeah. For Big Edie. Really great, really great. And then moving on, we have Bob Stillman as George Gould Strong. Mm. Terrific pianist, a beautiful voice. Uh-huh. He has. He doesn't play the depression too much. No, no, he doesn't at all. The, the depression is always there you can see that it's hidden under because we learn in act two that George Gould strong committed suicide. Uh huh. He's good at keeping the depression under wraps, but making it clear that it's there and he's likable. He has these witticisms and throwing off a witticism seems like something easy, but look at some of these kids that are coming out of these, not to disparage the kids that are coming out of the MT programs, but a lot of the kids coming out of the MT programs, they don't know how to land a witticism. They understand that it's a joke and they'll overplay it, but they don't understand how to really land a witticism. He and Bob Stillman instinctually understands that. 
And so then the last performance we're going to be getting to in Act 1 is uh-huh. Christine Ebersol as Big Edie. Y- you never drop that class for a second. You never drop this dignity. You know? You never drop the poise. Even when she's crying. She's crying in a way where the chest is open, the shoulders are back. Yeah. And the she's, head she's just crying. tilts down. She's crying in such a way that a book would describe as like a lady sprawled out over a chaise. You know what I mean? With like the arm down and the hand over the forehead and like completely spread out to camera. Like that's just how she embodies this character altogether. Mm-hmm. It's so, it's always thrilling to see so much class and dignity put up on stage just to see it in front of you. And here it's done really, really excellently and with so much fluency, which, you know, must be very hard to get out of for that second act when we talk about it. The class, the dignity, the acting chops, the beautiful voice, it's all there. What more do you want from a performer? It, this really is an extremely adept and fluent performance. And my god, her voice as well. She sings yeah, this excellently. Yeah, her voice. Mm-hmm. It's Just, one of the great musical theater voices. I loved it, loved it. And then we don't get too much of that, because then we get Act 2, and uh, Christine Eversole is a different human, both literally and figuratively. Yes. We're going to move into Act 2. There's really two performances we're going to be discussing in Act 2. Well, there's really two performances with cameos from the company. Yeah, there's really two performances. Um, I say that we just discuss the performances as we discuss the act. I agree. Okay. All right. So act two begins and immediately we launch into the revolutionary costume for today where little Edie instructs us how we should dress. Uh What is genius about this song? She comes out and she has a dead on impression of little Edie. Yeah. And the audience is cackling at it. It is letter perfect. Yeah. There is, you know, a lot of people do impressions of Little Edie. We had Jinx Monsoon on the Snatch Game. We had <laughs> Drew Barrymore in the HBO movie. Even Tina Fey did a Little Edie impression on an episode of 30 Rock. No one gets the impression as good as Christine Ebersole. No one is as perfect. It really is like she is possessed up there with the actual spirit of Little Edie. And what is great about revolutionary costume for today, it's about a four or five minute song. It gets you used to the impression. It gets you laughing at the impression. It lets you geek out at the impression. So then when the act moves on, you're ready to actually take in dramatic material. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's such a fantastic transition. Not just like, you know, transition you from one time zone to another but to transition this audience from one performance to another and get them settled into who this character is and especially who christine ebersole is now for the rest of the show and just Mm -hmm. going forward any actress who then takes on this role you know Mm -hmm. after becoming so familiar with her after knowing who she is so well throughout this first act to then really take some time to go okay this is how this character physically operates. This is how their voice sounds. This is how they move. This is how they display themselves. This is how they talk. 
And so by the mm-hmm. end of that song, you're already, okay, now I know this character. I know what I'm in for with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a very sly piece of construction that we're going to give you a four-minute comedy song at the top of Act 2 so that you can relax and get to know her. And you already know her because you're homosexual and you've seen Grey Gardens. And then as soon as you heard there was a Grey Gardens musical, you bought a ticket. Mm-hmm. Let's be and honest also, here. And also, <laughs> you, 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 see, you see Christine Ebersole as Little Edie on a... You, you just see that those words in that order. Uh, your wallet flies out of your pocket. That's just how that works. Yes, it's gay tithing. Yeah. It's gay tithing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as well, it, it, it helps a lot uh, to have this song out there and to have a moment dedicated to comedy here because um, from here on out, there's a lot of humor, but there's not too much to, to laugh about, you know? Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of... Uh, while there is the... humor, I wouldn't say it's a lot of levity. The rest of the laughs are going to be, I recognize that. Yeah, it's I recognize that, or we're already settled into this strange, absurd, weird, like, place I just can't understand that this is happening. You, you know, know, one the, of the, the great... The laugh is from, like, holy shit, they're really just doing that. It, one of the great actual jokes that's in the script. Probably the biggest laugh of the evening. They talk about the Board of Health drops off these papers under the door that if you don't clean up the place... <laughs> We're going to take legal action. And the line is, you know, they tell us, they tell us we've got to clean up this mess when they are the ones contributing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What a terrific line. Um, and and yeah, though there is that, you know, kind of humor, think about it. If you take out that song, if you take out that entire moment, this show starts with them on the sun deck and... That's a very jarring place to land on if you're not, like, disarmed at the top of that, right? But you have that moment of, like, you know, disarming you as soon as you walk in. And so you're sort of loosened up a little bit. You're sort of able to look at this and see it from a more comedic perspective. And you look at the documentary, if I'm not mistaken, and I've seen the documentary about five times, so I don't think I'm mistaken. Um, (laughs) The documentary, you meet Edie first little Edie she comes and welcomes in the Maisels and then you end you end up on that exact porch scene that's something that is interesting about the book they have to take what is an established documentary and they have to hit the moments that everyone is expecting but also they have to create something dramatic and they have to create something that's a little more structured than a documentary yeah. So it is interesting to see what stays, what is invented. A lot of the fights that we see between Edie, uh, Little Edie and Big Edie, those are about half made up. Half of it is lines from the documentary, half of it is made up, and that is where you realize the genius of the book mm-hmm. for the second act of what you're able to make up, how you're able to just match those voices, and then the overall structure. Yeah. There's an interesting disclaimer in the libretto where just in bold it says, the events of the play are based on both fact and fiction, which, you know, highlights the fact that 
a lot of this play sort of needs to be fictional, but it needs to be firmly rooted in this universe of fact, which when you have a universe of fact like that, um, how hard can it really be to stay in it? You know, you're given so much room. You're given so much suspension of disbelief that you can really do a lot with that. Mm-hmm. What, else, what What's next that you want to talk about? I want to mention that the Walter Kerr is a playhouse that traditionally was not for musicals. It is, what, 945 seats? They don't have any problem using a turntable. <laughs> Dan, you gotta stop that talking one's for about you. Les Mis. That one is for you. You gotta stop bringing it up. This is the second time in like the week in a week in which we've recorded an episode and you've brought up a turntable and it's maintenance can you lay off man <laughs> that one was for you okay i knew you were probably going for to mention me? it for me for you for me for you for, me. for you for, for you <laughs> i like that we sort of complimented each other there we did we harmonized perfectly. thank you for that <laughs> They even manage a turntable, and I don't know why a turntable is so hard to upkeep. This is what I've been saying, Dan. I, I, a lot of people are blowing the maintenance of turntables so far out of proportion. <coughs> Lawrence Connor. <coughs> Sorry, I got something in my throat. Um, well, and I will mention as well. I do know that original turntable in Les Mis, it was a big piece of technology, but you were redoing the show anyway. Make it an easier turntable to maintain and handle. And here's the thing. This is 2006. This is the end of 2006. At the beginning of the year, we got the uh, first revival of Les Mis. So we've got at least two turntables and musicals going on at the same time here. And this is also, I believe, the exact same time as the Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat revival in London that they had the casting search for that also had a turntable. International turntables. They seem to be doing all right with it. Maybe it's you know, just me. 2007, I was in a community theater show that had a turntable, and it was the first time that this community theater had had a turntable, and they realized how easy it was, and now they do it all the time. Yeah. But we'll talk about that another time, I'm sure. Back to Grey Gardens. Let's talk about how how um, music is used in this, right? Because Act 1 were set very heavily in 1940s musical theater. And then Act 2, we have all of these more interesting and complex numbers that seem like they've evolved with the time, you know? It's like we get a, a bunch of songs that seem out of, you know, early Sondheimia. Mm -hmm. If you look uh, at something like, um, you know, Revolutionary Costume, that's one. Um, you look at Around the World, that's like the Sondheim Breakdown song. Um, mm -hmm. Jerry loves my corn. It's like, like all of these numbers are so rooted in like, you know, the, the, the musicality is more complex. It's not a tune. It's a number, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's really complex musicality with really, really less clever and more 
detailed lyrics, you know? Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. You know, we talked that. a little bit about orchestrations, and I want to talk about how they make the sound so full. Please. They have two reed players, and oftentimes the reed players are on the three and the five of the chord, if it's a traditional one chord. Uh-huh. Just for example, it's not anything specific, but if it's a traditional, Ooh, bum, bum. if it's a traditional one chord, the reeds are on both the three and the five, so you're getting a tighter harmony there. Or if there's yeah. anything that's particularly dissonant, they'll throw the reeds on both of those. So they're playing in the same area of space pretty much the entire show. And so you hear that part and your brain thinks that sound is full. And then you can have the piano fill out the rest of the chord. And you can have then the violin play and do an ostinata type thing. And you can have the bass then fill out your bass line. Uh It's really expertly done how they accomplish such a full sound with so few instruments. Yeah, totally. And especially in Act 2, where... Some of those harmonies are downright weird. Intentionally. (laughs) Intentionally. But you know that they're right. And it doesn't sound like there's anything missing. The first act goes for very big Broadway kind of orchestral sounding things, you know? Mm -hmm. The kind of thing that you would expect to hear from like a very lavish 15 to 18 piece orchestra, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why it makes it so surprising to find out there's only nine because you're like, wow, but I heard... I heard an orchestra, not a band, you know? Um, Well, and just keeping with the trumpet, in Act 1, the trumpet is going to be on the top, triumphantly topping whatever chord they're on at the end of the song. Here in Act 2, when the trumpet comes in, it's probably muted, and it's adding in a dissonant line that clashes with the harmony. It's not sitting on the top of the chord anymore. Yeah. And whereas, whereas the the first act's brilliance of the orchestration picks up in this false soundingness, the second act really delivers with delivering the complexities, um, and that's as well something that I think tracks of that period, right? Where in those mm-hmm. '40s musicals, what you're going for is the best and grandest sounding music, whereas in the 70s what you're going for is the most interesting and the most nuanced and the and the music with the greatest depth you know mm-hmm. and the it rides both driven. tidal waves character driven absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. in the first act the music is its own character and then in the second it is an extreme complement to the characters on stage it's just a brilliant score an absolutely brilliant score. All of the songs in this act are given so much purpose and filled with so much information, you know? And it's all mm-hmm. delivered so brilliantly. And your use of the your use of the term number, absolutely. You think well, even Jerry likes my corn. There's about five different dialogue bits that come in and out. Yeah. Throughout that song. Which is typical of the time period, too, right? Where you'd have mm-hmm. movements it's in not a musical just... theater song. Where you'd have actual um, plot happening during a song. Well, even look at Will You 
to Jerry Likes My Corn. Will You, that's typical of a 1940s song, and even if there's dialogue, well, you essentially complete the song, then you put in a couple more lines of dialogue, and then you reprise the song. Yeah. Jerry Likes My Corn, there's little bits and tendrils coming out, and then there's a couple lines of dialogue, and then you do a little bit more song, and then there's a couple lines of dialogue, and then maybe you'll reprise a previous section. And then, of course, you're looking at something like Around the World, and you're looking at something like The House We Live In, and even something like Choose to Be Happy, where each of these songs sort of have movements, you know? Where Mm -hmm. it's sort of... You start in one place, and then you go to a slightly different place, and then you go to a slightly different place. And you don't just, like, you know, repeat the the music over and over and over again. Something like Mother Darling, it's like the same melody and the same music with uh, different lyrics swapped in. Whereas in something like Around the World, you take complete breaks from the origin of the song in order to go on, you know, a diverging path, and then you return back home. Well, diverging path, and then there's a reference in the song. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, a heavy crossing, or... Which is Robert Frost. Yes. It's a Robert Frost quote. And yes, it is two very different songs that are kind of just smashed together. And the entire drama of the song is how she goes from one moment to the next. Yeah. And how when she really cannot really cannot deal with any more of the depression and just the realities of her life it goes back to and it almost sounds like a little music box playing bum 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 around the world mm-hmm. genius just... and then to top off that number it's a list number she's talking about you know a silver mask from a masquerade and then yeah. finally the overall button of that song, it's one of the best buttons in recent musical theater. A birdcage I plan to hang, I'll get to that someday. A birdcage for a bird who flew away around the world. So you completely change the meaning of around the world and you connect it back to character and it's the fact that the character isn't going around and she has this item but she doesn't have the bird because even the bird can't stand to live there. <laughs> just one of the crushing lines and what a great way to top off that number in the song uh, another winter there's another line in the libretto that another direction that i want to give all of the stage directions in like the last 10 pages of this are straight up it, it it's like someone reciting exactly what's going on on stage in like the most like novelistic radio recap enticing kind of way and mm-hmm. when we get to the end of that song where she stops singing lyrics and she starts sort of just like you know vocalizing the 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 direction is frozen in place she wordlessly intones and just that is haunting like come on mhm in book by Doug Wright, mm. who is a Pulitzer Prize winner. Not at all surprised. He won a Pulitzer for I Am My Own Wife. Oh, yes, I know this play. So you mentioned the house we live in. And there's one bit of staging that I have to point out. Because yep. it's just genius. Near the end of the song, Little Edie 
does a series of turns across the entire stage, but it is so slow motion that you don't really notice what she's doing until she's at the other side of the stage and she's moved on, and you realize, oh, she's trying to do some kind of Ann Miller tap circle kind of thing, but she's just so bad at it that you don't even realize what actual move she's making. You can see the intent, and you can see exactly where she is not technically proficient enough to give you the intent. It's a great moment of choreography, too, because you have all of these people come out behind her and start actually dancing, and dancing well. And because they are dancing well, you can see what the choreography is supposed to be, and you can see what she is not giving you. Yeah, well pointed out. Jerry Likes My Corn, I found very moving mm-hmm. because you realize she has so little in her life that what this kid, and it's the only kid that they really interact with that is not her daughter, what this kid thinks of her corn is the only measure that she can take of herself from a different human being. And it's the only time of the day where she gets to feel positive about herself. Man, that's heavy. That was when the show really started getting depressing. Where you realize, like, like, like so much of her worth is pinned on this. Because it's the only thing she can pin her worth to. Yeah, she's got nothing else. She's got cats lying on top of her feet, and she can't even open a can. This is the only validation that she's getting in her life. Mm-hmm. So why don't we get into the relationship between the two? Yeah, sounds good. Um, Because we are heading into... There are scenes, and at this point I think we already said, we're really covering all of the bad mother-daughter relationship musicals. And for some reason, these bad mother-daughter relationship musicals always have that one book scene that is like the best book scene in musical theater. That yeah. really stands out to you. In Gypsy, it's the dressing room scene. Yep. Here, it's the scene Jerry starts to leave and Big Edie is singing the Will You Reprise. And then Little Edie comes in and starts making fun of, Will you? And she's singing badly. And they get into this massive, massive argument about, you stopped me and I could have done this, I could have done this. Mm-hmm. God, what did you think of that scene? Really thrilling. Like, there, one of this show's greatest strengths is overlapping dialogue, and mm-hmm. it and in effectively delivering, you know, the progression of character in both at the same time, and having every line they say sort of be distinct and be noticeable and be relevant rather than just turning into word soup you know mm-hmm. it's 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 really really thought through it's really painstakingly developed and it's just really effective and really smart and the final line of that scene or the big climax of that scene you had to come home big Edie says you had to come home you, and it you really leaves home. you it's so delicately too it really leaves you pondering, did she need to come home because Big Edie needed her? Or, as the scene suggests, did she have a mental breakdown at the Barbizon 
and uh-huh. they had to bring her home so she wasn't institu- institutionalized. Yeah, she she her Edie's last line in that whole thing is she, he'd have had me committed. Mm-hmm. And that's something I also wanted to ask you. Um, do you think that just inherently Edie was always destined to snap? Or do you think it's really because of the events <sighs> in Act 1? That is a huge... What came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. You know. Because in, in both, it's like, on, on the one hand, it'd be really easy to assume that these events are what tip her over the edge. And on the other hand, you see little things in Act 1 that could lead you to the belief of, well, this was within her all along. This is a play of massive questions, and that is one of the yes. most massive questions, not just of this play, but of life. Yeah. What makes an addict? Are you born an addict, or did events turn you into one? Golly. It's the same question, essentially. Yeah. Do you have an idea? I think she would not have been here where she is in the second act had she not uh, suffered that trauma that she experiences on the day of her... Not wedding. It's like the day of her... Is it the day of her engagement? It's an engagement party, yeah. Yeah. On the day of her engagement party, had she not suffered that trauma, I don't think she would be where she is in the second act. I don't think... I don't think that's where it was born. Well, I don't... Yeah, I don't think that she would have reached even the events of the second act had there not been previous events that we don't see. Right. Another thing that is not discussed at all in the musical, but is made clear in other places in history, is historically accurate she wears all of these head coverings because her hair completely fell out yeah they mentioned that in the script they do yeah there's a line somewhere there about okay. the fact that her hair's gone yeah it's not that i think it's gone, i think it's something it on the just, mm-hmm. it literally fell out and that's something that in the drew barrymore movie that's a big moment of she goes to grab her hair and there's clumps and there's clumps falling out and it's stress Mm-hmm. that's I think she was always going to be kooky yeah was she going to be able to be a normal member of society I think she would have needed a lot of support that she never got to accomplish that and she does leave Grey Gardens historically oh yeah after the documentary and after her mother died she did leave and she got an apartment after in New York after her mother died right and well she got an apartment in New York and she actually did have a club act <laughs> I don't know anyone that saw it, but she had an actual club act that was apparently popular. Well, that would have been did. after the movie comes out, yeah? This, this is after the movie comes out. Yeah, there's no way she would have had that club act without the documentary. Yeah. Of course you're going to you're going to walk out of a movie and go, I'd pay, you know, I'd buy a ticket to whatever Baby Jane's show was. You know, like it's, well, I but like also, it's the same kind of thing. Are you buying the ticket to support or are you buying the ticket to laugh at? That's you're buying whole... the ticket to watch. You're you're there to to, to watch and to go. But isn't I there saw something a little not to support, but to go like exactly? It's like it's like the exhibit at the zoo kind of thing. Where it's like you're there to watch. You're there to look. You're there to say mm-hmm. I went and saw this person. Like it's a story. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else to say? So this leads us to the scene. Mm-hmm. The scene to end all scenes. Oh boy, where he, it's, it's, you just get your time with Edie. 
little Edie goes to walk out and mm-hmm. she sings an around the world reprise and then the gardener comes asks her how mm-hmm. she's doing because it looks like she's leaving and that shocks everyone and her yeah. response I've got it under control here I am very under control I'm extremely organized I'm extremely organized and she says it with such realization that that is what she has to say but she absolutely knows she's lying and god does it eat her up inside yeah and we have one of the most hauntingly beautiful songs ever written another winter in a summer town were you just devastated by this song as much as i was i was like shaken it was completely just such a wallop to the stomach because so she tragic knows and so heartbreaking and for the first oh, time you can tell that she knows what's normal and she knows that her situation is not normal and not only does she not want out but she knows what she's losing god and i cried an embarrassing amount again this is the second week in a row where i have audibly cried and it started in the dialogue scene with the reprise of will you and the big confrontation and then she goes to walk out and it was again i was misty-eyed and like actually crying and then the song ends Edie, i can't open the damn can and you have the most heartbreaking line in the play which is coming mother darling complete silence complete silence where she decides what she's going to do and it's not so much that she decides it's that she knows she's going back and she hates herself for it you can see in her face that acceptance of like I'm never going to escape this and that's where the auditory <laughs> started for me. <laughs> so, let's cap off the two performances. We didn't talk much about Mary Louise Wilson. We haven't talked about her at all yet. What'd you think of her in this? Vocally, she's letter perfect, which really surprised me at how accurate she was and honestly how rangy that material is for her yeah it's not asking you to just you know this is your range when you walk in and we'll compose for whatever your range is this is asking her to have a very wide range and you know that will you reprise section she's up doing the same soprano notes that christine ebersall had to do in act one albeit they don't have to sound perfect but she still sounds pretty damn good and you know I love her in this as much as I love her the first time we talked about her. As Tessie Tura with Angela Lansbury, yeah. Uh-huh. Here, she's just delivering such an effective performance. She's someone who, you know, when you have Christine Ebersole in this, even though the character she's now playing has taken the spotlight in the first act, you have Christine Ebersole carrying on through the thing, and so people's eyes are naturally drawn to, oh, okay, this is 
staying throughout. But my God, Mary Louise Wilson gives such a stunningly gorgeous performance in this. And matches so, ever saw beat for beat. Energy beat for energy. Beat for beat. Absolutely. A brilliant continuation of the character that we've seen in the first act. And from just the clips I've seen of the of the film as well. Really also staying true to what the essence of that character is. Also you know? a perfect impression of who the person was in the documentary. They are both doing... Yeah spot on perfect impressions and it's never about oh they're doing an impression because sometimes you yeah. know you see these performances where someone does an impression and the impression is the entire performance no the impression here is just the beginning of the performance uh-huh and the cake i had and jerry loves my corn are both incredible numbers so so incredible both incredibly written and incredibly performed. She hits every single nail on the head with these songs. You had a line with I ate the cake I had. Talk about it. So there's this one lyric in the cake I had. And that lyric goes, and I quote, I ate the cake I had, no thanks to daddy. This is ten words that... I think encapsulate what musical theater is. <laughs> I Expand. ate the cake Expand. I had. No thanks to daddy. That is not since the rink. Have we gotten such a perfectly eloquent line that so encapsulates the beautiful melodrama of Broadway. <laughs> but what is it about the line? Really get into it. I ate the cake I had. First of all, Glory of youth. I was stunning back in the day. Look at who I was. That clinging on to former glory. I ate the cake I had. I lived every opportunity I had. I lived it up. I made the most of my life. It's triumph. No thanks to daddy. Boom. Family trauma. Boom. <laughs> Rising above. <laughs> Rising above societal expectations of you. Boom. Rub it in the face of the haters. Boom. I am on top and look at where they all were. That is musical theater. That's Candor and Ebb. That's Funny Girl. That's Sondheim. That's some of the best work you've done on this podcast. <laughs> oh, good job. This proves, this proves how studied I am with the form of musical theater as a result of this podcast. You know, I had never had that thought for myself, but you sent a message, <laughs> I ate the cake I had, no thanks to daddy, is the most musical theater line I've heard in my life, and it delighted me to no end. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, I'm in tears right now. <laughs> <laughs> no thanks to daddy. And it's belting. So, it's belting, too. Yeah, it's belted. And it's sung by an 80-year-old woman sitting down. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> With the most miraculous light. <laughs> and uh, that, ladies and gentlemen, and and all those who do not fall along the gender binary, is what musical theater is to me. Thank you for listening to this episode <laughs> I think I that's everything. Are we done talking about Grey Gardens, the show? We haven't talked about Christine Ebersol in Act 2. Let's let's sum up Christine Ebersol in Act 2 and then talk about her throughout this performance. 
what it is, is understanding how much energy was available to Little Edie and understanding that energy isn't necessarily big enough for a Broadway house. Yeah. So honoring the amount of energy, but also finding ways to transmit that to the 945 people that are sitting there watching you. Yeah. Again, gorgeous voice. Another winter in a summer town. (sighs) Vocally, just a stunner. And (sighs) how many performances can you remember where the highlight of the entire performance was silence? And that was a good thing. I'm not talking about an understudy that can't (laughs) sing. Where the positive highlight of the performance was silence because the actor was giving you so much without even having to speak. It's it's a stunning, stunning portrayal. And it's a stunning achievement. Yeah, like honestly, it's someone who's so detached from reality. Someone who's so snapped with the fabric of what the real world is. There's so much anguish. There's a lot that's both on the surface and below it that adds so much to how this character comes across. The way Christine internalizes that in this role is so evident, and it's like she's internalizing it to an extent where it's literally shining through her pores, you know? It's never put on. It's never pushed out. It's it's within her. And you can feel that within her. And as well, just the range of capabilities that allow you to go from poise and dignity to the absolute dregs of society. That's a, that's a wallop, really is. Overall, this is a performance that stands up with Jennifer Holiday and Dreamgirls. This is a performance that stands up with Ethel Merman and Gypsy. This is a performance that stands up with Patti Lapone and Gypsy. This is one of the possibly ten best performances a female gives in a musical, period. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. What she does on that stage... Is unfathomable. Unfathomable. Mm-hmm. That's why you keep going to the theater, because you hope someday you're going to land on seeing that performance. And so with that, is the last thing to talk about this video? Yep. What did you think of this video? It's a perfect video. Yep. I have nothing else to say. It's a perfect video. Well, then it misses two things. Hmm. It misses the very end of Act 1. There's a dropout, but you still get the audio. And it's like, we're talking about five seconds here, then it misses. Yeah. The second thing it misses, another winter in a summer town. My season ended a long time ago. Little Edie from Act 1 shows up in the attic where uh, where Around the World happened. She packs her bags and she runs off stage. And you see her. Oh, I didn't know that. You see her flash by really quickly in the background. And huh. it's a great moment of staging if you know it's there. If not, you're not really going to miss it. But 
it really underlines my season ended and she's seeing herself leaving before understanding that she returned back. So now that she's leaving, she knows she's going to return back anyway. So that minute of silence is then little Edie's leaving for the second time. That's all she gives herself. Dang. So that Aside was... Aside from that... That was disappointing that that was missed, but otherwise... It's a fantastic video quality, perfectly shot, doesn't miss anything, really no spotlight washout, which is very atypical of 2006. Yeah. Perfect audio. This video is an A+. Perfect stage shots, perfect close-ups, immaculate audio, kept up with all the action spectacularly. Definite A+. Mm Mm-hmm. I think we've given an A plus to one other video. I think that probably would have been um... Dance of the Vampires. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, and then and then we gave and then like you know the runner ups to this we're talking about like reference copy level stuff something like Drowsy Chaperone you know that yeah. we give that we give that like an A. Um, I think we gave that a high A. This is yeah a, a high plus. A and I think it was the same for a New Brain I think. And and I wouldn't even I wouldn't even really call Grey Gardens a reference copy, but it gives you an experience, if not on par with, maybe even greater than the experience that would be had in the theater. Well, especially the Walter Kerr. By the time you get up to that balcony, that's so high up. Yeah, they're already at intermission, and you got to walk all the way back down and go to the bathroom. <laughs> God damn it, I spent 150 fucking bucks for Hades Town, <laughs> and this is my seat this high up. No, people, it, it's a known fact that people that have height problems seriously freak out on the balcony of the Walter Kerr. They think if they lean down, lean forward a bit too far, they might just they fall, fall onto the stage. Yeah, yeah, they think they're going to fall down. They think they there should be all, There should be, like, uh, handrails on each seat. <laughs> One of those... <laughs> amusement park rides where they lock you in they lock you in at the start of the ride they do that at the wall raise your hands if you need any assistance and so this wraps up our discussion of grey gardens and what Dan, a fucking show what Dan show. yes Joshua we've talked about grey gardens mm-hmm. before this we talked about nine before uh-huh. this, we talked about M. Butterfly. Before this, we talked about Cabaret. Jesus Christ. It's like we're trying to win the award for the most depressing podcast of the year. Would you mind if we loosen up a little bit next week? Just a little bit, not a lot. I know exactly how we're going to loosen up. We're watching Next to Normal next week, everybody. Next <laughs> oh, don't, to don't, no, normal. no, no. Don't scare the audience. Don't scare the audience. We'll get to that down the line. Down the line. I I I'll, I just want to go with like you know like like a happy like a like a safe bet happy you know something that like the family can enjoy something to raise our spirits just something like light and easy you know what I'm saying are you would you be okay with that I think we should do awesome bent, bent next week everybody <sighs> the bent the play about gays and the Holocaust oh my God look I just want <laughs> us to have a nice relaxing peaceful relaxing time at the theater can we do that dan can we please we can try i guess 
Okay, thank you, and I know just the show. Next week, we're going to be talking about the Rocky Horror Show, specifically the 2000 Broadway revival. This is supposed to be relaxing. I think this will be a great opportunity to just sit back, unwind, and let the show just sort of wash over you. You know, how is this supposed to wash over you when you're supposed to get off your ass and take a jump to the left and then a jump and a... A step to to the the right, right. put your hands on your hips, squeeze your knees in tight. Then it's the pelvic thrust that really drives them insane. Let's do the time warp again. What if I got a new hip? Time warp again. What if I got a new hip? I can't squeeze my pelvic thrust. I. They put warnings about this outside of the theater, Dan. I don't know what to tell you. The instructions are in the song. Like this doesn't sound knowing what to happen. This does not sound like a easy, relaxing time in the theater. Well, oh well. See you next week. Macaroni was ill, the daily Aston still. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critic Circle. Tune in next week when we talk about the Rocky Horror Show, specifically the Broadway revival's performance on August 24th, 2001. If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Criticable Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the receptive trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Criticable Podcast is not registered.